0: Welcome to episode number 343 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos, and in this week's show, an Avro RJ85 lands at Norwich Airport, but not under its own power. Duty Free is set to change, and drones are being flown into active volcanoes on purpose. And in the military this week, SEAL Team 6 sees some serious action, and the Blue Angels Legacy Hornets are going to conduct the final Pensacola flyover. Joining me this week, as always, in the PTUK Master Suite studio, it is, of course, the man who has all the beers, it's Matt Smith. <laughs> all the beers, what are you trying
1: to say? How rude. You make me sound like an alcoholic. <laughs> not at all, not at all. it uh, last you ages. Yes, I, I, I resemble that remark. Anyway, yes. Uh, hello, hello, how is everyone? Sorry, a little bit... A little bit sort of panic trying to get
0: started there. Um, we, we couldn't get online
1: for some reason for a minute, but we, I
0: think we're there now. All good. All good. I think what it was, Matt, is when you put that picture of Jonathan Warner up on the uh, green screen, that's what affected everything. I, I don't know what you mean. Mm. I don't know what you mean. What do you mean, this picture
1: here? Um, le- let me just do this, it alright. Well, you see, I should just very briefly explain the reason, the reason why we said that. Jonathan Warner usually supplies me with a picture that goes up on the green screen, like what you can see behind me right now. Uh, apologies if you're listening to the audio version, this makes no sense. Uh, he sent me the message saying, um, uh, would you like a picture of an egg beater to have as your background uh, this evening? And if I move slightly to my right, this is what I got.
2: Oh. <laughs> oh, hideous.
1: I know. Anyway, I, I don't think I can leave that there any longer. I'm going to make that go away. No. Uh, <laughs> there we got slightly scared. So, yes.
0: <laughs> he's back with us again this week. It's uh, lovely to see you back. Uh, Nev, you are back with us again. And uh, we've had a very good week this week, haven't we? been very hectic yes i was in
3: the gibraltar for a case over the weekend which was lovely but of course obviously can't go there again now because of all the changes that have gone and then on uh tuesday i was filming with the fellows from the a320 podcast uh which was a full uh day in the a320 sim up at cambridge airport and then carlos and i were at uh duxford which was superb actually and the weather was fantastic it, wasn't it where well, we did a superb uh, interview uh with the ceo of faraday and uh, when i've edited it edited it this week uh hopefully we'll be playing it out or, or the first part of it actually on next week's show cause i think to be a four-part series so i'm really looking forward to uh, to doing that
0: yeah, we had a good day Wednesday. Good weather. I'm looking forward to that uh, coming on the show as well, Nev, yeah. really much. So, back, he's back this week. I'm very, very happy indeed to say that he's back this week on the show. And it is a hugely warm welcome to uh, Armando. Welcome back on this week.
4: Hey, thanks, guys. I had to kick Steph out of the seat and get her out of here and back to her own show, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm happy to be back as usual and uh, not a lot of flying, not a lot going on with me. Actually, just been to the doctor's the last uh, uh, two weeks. So I've just been laying around drinking a bunch of soup and having my family take care of me and cuddling with dogs. No flying whatsoever this week.
0: No flying at all. I know, it's like an albatross,
4: like (laughs) a bird with its wings clipped, like a (laughs) wounded pigeon in New York City. Wow, that's really vivid. Anyways, to our... (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's good it's good to see it's good to see you even if you are feeling a little bit worse for weather at the moment. but no it's good to have you back on Armando and uh you've got some military news coming up as well later for us haven't you as well Looking
4: yeah to- as long as uh, as long as you guys will still take it uh, I do have some military stories yeah. but more importantly I, I've just learned the word fangirling I'm totally fangirling because <laughs> we have a great guest on
0: who have we got on this week, Armando? Come on, you do the introduction. for this. Okay,
4: so I'll do the introduction. Uh, this is a, a young man, uh, Ryan, who I, I've actually followed on YouTube for quite a bit. I love the videos. Um, so he's out in Papua New Guinea uh, flying some uh, missionary, uh, for a missionary organization, flying a fantastic Kodiak with, uh, I think it's a G1000, right,
5: Ryan? Yeah, that's correct. Thanks so much for having me on.
4: Yeah, fantastic videos my friend. I can't wait to ask you. I could probably spend all 2 hours doing this, but I'll try to <laughs> limit it to something uh because I, I I literally just love watching your videos and some of those airstrips are are just so cool for any pilot. And what what a what a dream to to be flying in those locations and getting that experience. Well, thanks. Yeah,
5: great to hear it. Yeah, it is a lot of fun for sure.
0: So, I round up this week and uh it's uh, obviously the Stuff that we've got for the interviews that we've done are going to be coming out next week, so make sure you keep your eyes open on those. Big thanks to everyone, also, who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room this evening. All the usual family members in the chat room this evening. Just going to go through a quick rundown of who we've got in there. Stephen H. Alan White. Hello, Lane Street. Uh, Dave Abbey's in there. Captain Cruz. Andrew Vandersage. Uh, Dave Abbey. Uh, Rakon is also in the chat room. Just scrolling up. Our main man Micah is in there. Masha, hello to you Masha. Uh, just scroll up, make sure I don't mind. Jack English, hello to you Jack. Uh, Richard Adam Sturman, hello to you uh, Gareth, I hope you're alright. Aaron P., Hello to you, Aaron, and a big hello to everyone who has joined us on the live show tonight. Don't forget as well, if you do listen to the audio podcast, don't forget to follow us on YouTube and check out when we go on the live stream on YouTube. You can hit the subscribe button on our YouTube page. And also, if you're there, hit the bell icon next to the subscribe button to be notified when we go live and we are recording episodes like we are now. Then you can join us in the YouTube chat room. So moving on to the next part of the show, then we've got uh, a few bits of housework to do. And obviously it is the beginning of the month and it is the time where we get to say a big thanks to everyone who donates to the show via Patreon and PayPal. So, Nev, over to you. Yeah, thank you very much indeed,
3: Uh, Carlos Wyatt. This is a very important part of the show. This is the bit where we say thank you to all of our Patreon and PayPal donators. And this month it was uh, Nicholas Codling, Warren Dixon, Luis Charez, Alan Loveday, Andrew Van der Sarg, Alan White... Stephen Howland, Tanya Wyman, Megan Carrion, Jacob Darlington-Brown, Nicholas Hewitt, Masha, Owen, Ruben Wells, Nico Rega, uh, Graham Haley, uh, uh, Jonathan Warner, Eric Graves, Matt Caton, Jordan Rose, Andrew Wilson, Captain Jeff. Uh, Apping, Liz Piper, Jeff Ward, Myla, Evan Shue, Philip Labe, and Stuart Backer. and thanks very much indeed to Jenny and Masouz Karim for their PayPal donations, and uh, this is uh, really important for us to be able to keep the show on air, so thank you very much to one and all of you.
0: Yep, a big thanks, because it all helps uh, to push the show and push things along, so yeah, big thanks to everyone who has uh, donated to us. So we're going to move on with our chat with Ryan then, our guest on the show this week. And for those of you who haven't seen Ryan's channel on YouTube, uh, it's one to definitely check out. Honestly, Ryan, your videos are fantastic. I think one of the big things that uh, attracted me to your videos, not just because of the quality, but also because not only do you do the the videos of of you flying into various locations within Papua New Guinea, but you also... um, Provide a really instructional video as to exactly the the runnings of the aircraft. So, you know hats off to you
5: Well, thank you very much appreciate that
0: So Ryan, how did this uh, all start for you then? Um, Where where was the uh, first kind of flight for you? Was it? uh, PPLs Cessna 150s Pipers Yeah, that it started um, the at least the
5: interest probably like first grade, I would say. I lived actually here in Papua New Guinea when I was a kid. My parents were missionaries, um, and we lived on the exact same base when I was in first grade through about fifth grade. And I had the opportunity to go on some flights out to some of the bush locations that I actually fly to now for Christmas to visit friends and whatnot. And even at first grade, I was like, wow, this would be the coolest job ever. And it just stuck with me, and um, like many of my early, early age, so right out of high school is when I actually started pursuing aviation. And um, so I think 19 was when I got my pilot, pilot certificate. Yeah, from there, uh, I actually took a long break from flying after that and didn't pick it back up until I was 26. So yeah, I did it backwards than most people do.
0: So you fly. Obviously, the the videos you fly show us flying into all those locations in Papua New Guinea. How did that kind of job or that that kind of role uh, come into your life? Was it a kind of an application? And you you just thought I'd love to do something like this, and and that was that was urine.
5: Um, no, I, I wish it was that easy. Um, <laughs> it was actually an interest going into missions more so than aviation. Like I knew I wanted to come into missions, and specifically this one because. I work with Ethnos 360 Aviation, and like our main focus is to assist the tribal church planters that are living out here, and that's something I wanted to be a part of. And Originally, I actually wanted to be a church planter, so it's kind of backwards, but that's why. I went into missions originally and then came into aviation, and it worked out well that I could still be a part of missions through aviation. So yeah, I had to go through all of their training to become a missionary before I could actually even do the actual flying mission part of it as well
0: so your missionary bush pilot youtube page you've obviously got quite a lot of videos on on there now you've got a lot of subscribers as well so there's obviously a lot of love for the videos how did that all come about because obviously you've got you've got is it three or four or five cameras you've got on the aircraft you've got in the uh, in the in the actual aircraft itself and on the outside of the aircraft was that kind of an idea one day you just thought i'm going to do a youtube you know vlog and
5: um mulling it around like for two years now but to be honest i was like man no one's gonna watch these videos youtube is so hard to like get any views into like worthwhile for your time um but i i don't know i've always wanted to do youtube i thought it'd be a lot of fun and just said you know what i'm just gonna like try it thousand subscribers in a year we'll see how that goes and within like a month and a half i had that so i was like all right well maybe people are actually interested in seeing this kind of stuff and just kind of went on from there
0: Amando, over to you
5: okay ryan we have
4: not prepared you for this so uh <laughs> well i i am a professional pilot i was 21 years in the air force so i am very very interested and in this podcast we don't usually get very technical However, we do have a lot of people that understand aviation. Actually, most of our listeners probably know more about aviation and flying than I do. Uh, but I, I, I'm i so glad to have an opportunity to talk to you because I, I've got so many questions. Um, and first of all, don't diminish your channel. It's got 111,000 subscribers. <laughs> so I don't know if we mentioned that or not. That's a lot of subscribers. Um, so uh, first of all, I, I suppose I'm going to start with a compliment, which is, every single flight that you film, you're very thorough and you do the checklist and you, I feel have a great routine to fight complacency, which is probably one of those things, especially when you're doing that many, you know, five, six legs a day that are 10 minutes long. Uh, I'm really, really impressed with your professionalism. Is that something that you strive to keep?
5: Well, thank you. I do very much strive to keep that because I know my own hazardous um, attitudes and it's resignation. So it's kind of like, I know myself, oh, you know, it doesn't really matter. Let's just hurry up and get going. Cause nothing's gonna happen anyways. So I know that about myself, so that I really have to slow myself down. And even if I'm not filming a video, I'm always saying, right, yeah, slow down. <laughs> so I actually appreciate doing the videos because it forces me to slow down and like talk through everything rather than just like, cause a lot of times you'll have weather coming in really quick and you're just like we've got to go like you're either getting in the plane now or you're going to stay here so it helps me slow down to stay safe because yeah uh complacency kills
4: <laughs> yeah and i know when we're doing uh interviews with aviators you know usually before the show we'll them them it's like hey don't don't say anything on the show that that you wouldn't say to the faa or that you don't want recorded forever in in history, but you're doing that every day, so uh, does that add an extra level of sort of oversight when you know you have the cameras and you know you have the the audio being recorded?
5: Yeah, um, it definitely, I've actually had to go back and we have CASA rules here rather than the FAA, and I've had to go back and look at them and be like, okay, I wanna be legit here, I don't wanna do anything that's like that I have called so what are the exact regulations for such and such and such and such so that I don't make a fool of myself and we don't get phone calls saying, hey, you're not supposed to be doing that. Here's a fine. <laughs> so, uh, yeah.
4: Yeah, that, that's uh, probably a, a good fear of anybody that records and posts their videos publicly is, is somebody with a badge saying, uh, we got to talk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so one of my other questions i'm going to jump around a little bit so one of my questions is whenever you're flying i hear you making uh sar calls or kind of calls in the blind uh, i i yeah. can't imagine that there's a lot of radio stations out there how that how does that work when you who are you talking to when when you're when you're making those calls
5: yeah so sar is just search and rescue and it's just like flight following in the states or maybe in a different country so basically we have to file flight plans now for every single one of our flights and we have to be in contact with them. Some of it is so that they have record of where we're going so that they can charge us for all the different landings and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so I, I cancel my SAR sometimes early before I'm even on the ground and people are like, why are you doing that? Well, usually it's because there's people on the ground that would response team. If I did have an accident within the pattern, they could get contact out way faster than sar watch could come and help me out um we also have a v2 tracker on our airplane so our home base can follow me around and if i they would be immediately notified all the way back to the states so i'm not worried about that in that respect so um but yeah it's hard to get a hold of them some days and that's another reason why i cancel a lot of times early is because we're talking on hf radios which is and and um, so we have VHF and HF. So if we can't get them on the VHF, then we have to switch over to HF and that's just usually terrible and frustrating and for everybody, them and us alike, for sure.
4: <laughs> that's, uh, that's awesome. Right. You know, that actually, I, I couldn't, I wouldn't have thought that, that you guys are talking on HF radio, but I guess it probably makes sense with the terrain out there, huh? Like you yeah. gotta get over the Hills. So I, I wanted to, so you fly the, uh, the, it's a Quest Kodiak, right?
5: That's correct. It's the first version. So that since then they've switched over to Dehar or Deher or whatever, and that's mm-hmm. now version two. Yeah.
4: So we've got a good friend of the show. She was on the show uh last week actually who flies a Kodiak for skydiving operation. But for those people that are not familiar with the Kodiak, tell me three things that you would like them to know about the Kodiak. Good or bad?
5: Um well, it has better avionics than some of the commercially flown airplanes here in Papua New Guinea, which is nice <laughs> for IFR flying. Um, but it can empty, it can land and stop within 500 feet and full up heavy all, all the way up to 7255 pounds. Um, it still can take off using around 1,000 foot on a That's grass amazing. runway or paved runway. So what yeah.
4: you uh that's one of the videos that, that first led me to your channel. Well, you you have one that's called a sixteen hundred foot wet mountain strip or something like that. Yeah. Um I don't know when you filled that, but but I was trying to improve my own flying because I fly out of a, what huh, I fly out of what I thought was a short air strip, like twenty five hundred feet in grass until I saw your channel. But uh but I think that was one of the things that I was looking for and that's how I found you was and I was okay. like, oh my gosh. So how do you, how do you approach those airports? I, I mean, 1,600 feet, 2,000 feet. Uh, what are you thinking about? What, how are you planning that out as you're approaching the airport?
5: Um, well, we always have committal points. And I always try to call them out so that you, once you get to this specific spot, you're now too close to the mountains to safely go around. People are always like, oh, it looks like you have lots of room to go around. Well, the camera perspective and a much wider perspective, but – um, from that point, you're not going to be able to safely go around, and depending on your weight of the aircraft, too, how much fuel, how much cargo you have on. So from that point on, no matter what, a kid runs out, a pig runs out, I'm going to be landing on the runway no matter what. And um, But, no, we do a string approach. So basically it's something – I mean, it's not really any different than any other kind of approach, but we're trying to keep a constant vertical speed coming all the way in. And I'm basically just staring at, at my touchdown spot or not really my touchdown spot, but right before it. So if I were to rotate the plane, I want to be about a plane and a half distance back is where my aiming point is so that I touch down exactly where I want to touch down. And I just keep that exact same spot, just fixated right on my cowling right where I want it. And then I'll just adjust my power. To keep my altitude coming in directly where I want to, so yeah. That's have you how ever we thought?
4: Have you ever thought? I guess we'll get to your your ultimate goals in a little bit. But have you ever thought about coming back to the U.S. or being out there and and, and teaching how, bush flying or these kinds of techniques?
5: Um, not really. It hasn't really occurred to me that much. Like instructing in the states at a one forty one school. But it was at a 141 school for, like, rich foreign kids to come over. And it just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth thing, you know? So, like, for me, like, I was the type that I bought all my own books. I read all my own books. I took all my IFR courses myself. I didn't even go to a – bought some videos, studied, did it. And so then to have rich kids be like, here, spoon feed me, like, every little – what page should I read? And I was just like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) um, I kind of love the bad taste for instructing, but I I don't know. We'll see what the future holds, but I don't know. We'll see.
4: Well, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you the follow-up question first, which is what was more your most rewarding flight? Uh, But I'll ask first, what, what has been your most harrowing experience out there so far?
5: Harrowing as in,
4: You know, kind of a scary teeth breather moment where you're just like, oh, boy, this
5: is. Uh, Thankfully, I haven't had too many. I've had, I would say probably dealing with weather, it would probably be top five for sure. Um, I had just got instant rating many, many years ago back in the States, but then never really used it like most people do. Like they just, unless they're going commercially, they're just like, oh, they might fly through a cloud here or there when I got to the field, like I had zero real experience. And then I got my IFR rating here. And the IFR flying here is much different than Oklahoma, where is where I did most of my training. So we have tropical storms that come up very, very fast. And some of them are fairly violent when you fly through them. So my first year was just testing my own comfortability level, I should say, and what I feel comfortable flying with if I feel comfortable flying with passengers through certain things, or if I'm by myself, what do I feel comfortable? So I think the first year of having that a good eye opener of like, here's what for you and here's how it can stress and raise your blood pressure. So yeah, I've flown through a couple of storms my first year that had some pretty severe turbulence. And after flying through it, you know, I was like, if the passengers get off the plane and say, I thought I was gonna die today, that's an indication that you shouldn't have done that flight. So, I
4: think that would apply. I think that would apply whether you're like a captain at American Airlines or, you know, or flying out there in P and G. But so yeah. the natural follow-up is is what has been your most rewarding flight?
5: Um, I would say medevacs. I really enjoyed flying medevacs. Uh, we fly them for the missionaries. We also fly them for just the PNG citizens uh, and I enjoy that because you feel like, directly like, oh, I really helped that person. Like if I wouldn't have flown them, they would have died kind of thing. So that's the service that we do here. We fly down to Australia. We also will just fly the PNG people out here to the, um, to the hospital and stuff. So it's great that we have the ability to actually fly all the way down to Australia because was it, two years ago, um almost to the month I had an infection just a scratch on my leg it was a scratch it wasn't even a cut and it went septic into my kneecap and had to be flown down to Australia have surgery on my knee and I still have like internal damage from it so it's a really nice thing that we had and I was in like two days kind of thing so it's really cool that we have the ability to fly down to Australia to get some proper medical care if need be when COVID isn't around <laughs> <laughs> right right uh, that's the first one, so everybody drink oh um, yeah,
1: <laughs> quick, grab a drink, everyone
4: <clears throat> so um that's a great segue, so we talked about metavac um, what for those that are interested in because missionary flying is one of those i guess kind of little known mysterious what 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 is it exactly that that people see ads somewhere or they'll go to uh, an aviation event like Oshkosh, and they'll usually usually be a recruiting booth of sorts but so in addition to medevac what is what is your day-to-day flying what is what is missionary flying
5: um specific our mission organization we would fly i would say probably 95 percent of our flights or more are directly for missionaries that live and more specifically they live out in the bush like what i mean by bush is they live out in the jungles and they live out there full time so we fly for um There's kids, we fly them out to school sometimes. We fly all their supplies, like their food. If they have any building projects that are going on, we fly for those. So basically, our whole job is just to assist them so that they can live out their full time translating Bible, teaching the people how to read. They actually, like, come up with – there's 800 languages in Papua New Guinea, and they actually break the languages down, come up with an alphabet, teach these people how to read and write their own language – So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a huge long process, but our job is to help them get their job done quicker.
4: And that's, that's awesome. You know, and and I I asked about one rewarding flight, but that's gotta, that's gotta feel good when you know that every single flight that you're going to take off and land, you're, you're actually having a great purpose for it. But listen, I I could sit, I hope to see you at Oshkosh (laughs) next year in the, in that, uh, the influencer tent because you know, we've, we've had a, a lot of friends of the show that um, go out there and they, they'll do their talks. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm really hoping to meet you in person at one of these aviation events. And I could go on all day long, but I think Nev has some questions from the chat room
3: I thought you were never going to stop.
4: Uh, (laughs) I I don't want to. I don't want to, but producer John is sitting there glaring at me in the screen.
3: (laughs) Well, so, Ryan, uh, Richard Adams in the chat room asks, uh, how often do you get stuck at a strip due to weather? Uh, He says he knows that flying is done before the afternoon storms, if possible. But uh, is the weather relatively predictable in PNG? I
5: have never been stuck um overnight or anything like that maybe for an hour or so waiting for some clouds to move on but thankfully i have never had to spend the night but if i had to a lot of times we we also if worst case scenario there's always people out there that would be more than willing to push you up for a night in their bush house you might just not get great sleep on the ground or <laughs> on a mat yeah i would say the weather is definitely not very predictable and it changes very very quickly
3: yeah. Uh, Richard also asks, have you ever had any uncontrollable passengers? As he guess is that many will be first time flyers uh, or very low times, at least. And given the weather and turbulence, uh, that might be quite scary for them.
5: No, um, I would say the culture here, if they're not, they're, they're not that outspoken. So if they were very, very nervous, which usually they are, um, typically they'll just, of them and close their eyes for the ride. So I <laughs> haven't had anybody that I've needed to go back and land for.
3: That's good. And then he says, uh, some of the strips seem to get fairly overgrown uh, before they get mown or slashed. How often do you have to refuse flights pending clearance and how uh, long does it take uh, before it gets sorted? Uh,
5: that's, a, that's like uh, the story of my... It, it seems that every time um, they'll have issues with getting grabbed Typically, if we just say, yeah, we're closing it, then within a week or so, they're going to recut it so that they can get it opened up just for themselves so they can fly their coffee out and whatnot. Um, But yeah, it's, it's hard because it's, I mean, the provincial governments are the ones that usually pay them to upkeep the maintenance for the airstrips. And maybe they just don't have, they aren't getting paid enough. I don't know. But the lack of motivation to it takes like potentially like a week or two to cut the airstrip. And then by the time they're done, they have to start off on the next end again. So I can understand their lack of motivation to do such a huge job. But yeah, it's a constant battle to have nice, nicely maintained airstrips.
3: I'm sure. And a uh, final question from Alan White in the chat room. Has Ryan learned to be an on the road maintenance technician, fixing little niggles as they crop up with the aircraft?
5: own maintenance staff i am a licensed amp back in the states and actually work as a mechanic for three years uh but we have our own staff of mechanics here and they do a great job at keeping our planes in tip-top shape so i don't have to
0: actually I'm just going to ask you ryan your how do your family feel about you uh you're flying because obviously you do fly in some really quite kind of i wouldn't say dangerous but quite challenging um areas i mean do they do they mind the uh the, the job you do
5: not at all. Thankfully, I'm married to a woman that encourages my fun, adventurous things like such. And on the weekends, if I need to go for a motorcycle ride, she's quick to let me know that I should go for a motorcycle ride.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. right? Well, uh, no, I was going to say, Armando, we've got like about two minutes. So here is your opportunity for three minutes for two, for, for a couple more questions. Go on, fire but Don't away. forget the last one as well. Don't forget <laughs> the last question.
4: Oh, that's right. Um, So I'll I'll ask one quick question, which is uh, where, if you figured out, and it's perfectly fine not to, but uh, where do you see yourself going from here, either on the missionary path or on the aviation path?
5: Yeah, so next January, not this one, but next in January 22, to the States and start helicopter training. Uh, We're transitioning (laughs) to a lot of helicopters, three helicopters in the next year to year and a half, and we need more helicopter pilots. So rather than getting brand new pilots that are helicopters, we figured it's going to be a lot quicker transition if we just send all of our fixed-wing pilots back to get dual-rated. So I'll start that, and then I'll be flying the R-66 um, probably for the first year, and then I'll be transitioning back and forth between the Kodiak and the R-66. I plan to do this um, tentatively right now until my kids are out of high school, so about another nine years. And then after that, man, I I don't really know what – I don't have any plans specifically in aviation or what I wanna do. And at that point, I'm tired of doing what I do. So we'll see. Well,
4: I'll tell you what, nine, I'm gonna mark the calendar nine years from now to get somebody that has yeah. bush flying experience, is, double, uh, is dual rated rotary wing and fixed wing, has an AMP and is a flight instructor. I'll come back and find you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Ryan, uh, so before, before I ask you the last question, I do wanna uh, plug your, your YouTube Uh, It's YouTube. It's NTMA pilot, right?
5: Uh, If if people just search for just missionary Missionary. Bush pilot, they'll find it. Yeah. I think that's the official name, like in all the metadata. But if you just search for missionary Bush pilot, then they'll come right up.
4: Okay. Perfect. Which is also your Instagram uh, and your Facebook missionary Bush pilot, right? Try to keep it simple. (laughs) Uh, I like it. Uh, We're simple people here at Um, PTUK. So our last question that we always ask is, uh, if money was no object and you could fly any aircraft in the world, past, present, or future, what aircraft would that be?
5: Uh, Probably like an open cockpit steerman, Like slow, low, just (laughs) wind going through your hair. That just sounds amazing to me.
4: Yeah. Awesome. We'll be in touch because we do have access to one.
5: All right. Sounds great.
4: <laughs> yeah, we have access to one with Bob Mills. Actually, he's uh, he's one of our good friends and a friend of the show. And he just bought a steerman, so we'll see what we can make happen. Oh, I yeah. think that should happen. That'd be awesome. Absolutely. Maybe someday. Definitely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so we we're going to say a big thanks to you, Ryan, for coming on the show today. It's been absolutely. Pleasure to talk to you. We know it's really early where you are as well. The time difference is quite uh, quite big for where you are. But uh, no, for anyone, don't forget check out Missionary Bush Pilot on YouTube. The videos are absolutely stunning. And uh, Ryan, just carry on putting those videos out because uh, you've got uh, a lot of fans out there for sure.
5: Well, thank you very much. Appreciate you having me on.
0: So we're going to say a big thanks and from everyone in the chat room and all the guests and hosts. Uh, yeah thanks for joining us Ryan and all the best for the future and safe flying
5: awesome thank you
0: bye-bye okay so we're going to well while while we
1: say our goodbyes to uh Ryan what we're just going to do is we're going to play out the next part of our plane truce that I did with Captain Al and this week we're talking about fuel and fuel issues (laughs) And welcome to The Plain Truth and this week we're going to be talking about fuel planning. Joining me as always is the legend that is Captain Al. Hi Captain Al. Hello, how are you doing? Yes, I'm very good, thank you, very good. Thank you for joining me again. And now, it's the uh, uh, slightly unusual subject matter here. This is actually is a conversation that uh, was had uh, during lockdown over a garden wall, as you might expect, with my neighbour, and they were referring to a, uh, a a flight that they'd had, actually. We were just talking about flying and things, and they were talking about a flight where they had a bit of a nightmare, really, and they ended up with several go-arounds and uh, ended up having to go to a different airport, I think, because of, of weather related incidences and things and uh, she was actually mentioning one of the things that was making her most nervous was the fact that all of this extra time that they were in the air and how much you know they know that they carry a little bit more fuel but how how much longer would they have been able to stay uh, in the air um, basically until um, something catastrophic happened as I say and it began to make her feel quite nervous as a nervous flyer anyway Uh, so my question to you really Al is it I know there's I know there's an element of contingency if you like when it comes to uh fuel loads and things like that but but what is the planning process involved in deciding how much fuel that you you take on board and realistically how much further can you fly um when it comes to to your fuel load if if, if for example you couldn't end up at the airport that you were hoping to
6: OK, what we'll do is we'll come back to go around and bad weather towards the end of this. But let's just have a look at the, the sort of normal planning process, if you like. So we'll take a step back and think if you're going to jump into your car and drive to uh, from Man- uh, excuse me, from Bungie to Manchester tomorrow, it's what, about 200
1: or so miles? Yeah. About, yeah. Ballpark figure somewhere around there. Yeah.
6: yeah. OK. So how much fuel are you going to put in your car for this journey?
1: oh well i'm a bit of one of those where i like to make sure that i've got a full tank before i go anywhere so so you like
6: most people are going to go to the petrol station in advance of the journey and just fill it up aren't you because then you know that you you've got more than enough more than that's going to give you give you what 400 ish miles of of range. yeah about before
1: 450 i think in in my c max to be fair yeah so so right range
6: okay right now you're going to drive your coach the same journey Right. Are you going to apply the same logic? Are you going to fill it up at the depot for your journey to yes, Manchester? It's the
1: short, yeah, the short answer is yes, I suppose now I can do about or oh, I'm trying to think, it's about it's about twelve hundred, thirteen hundred kilometres in a in coach that I can do roughly on a fuel tank full. So but again you would you would take that into consideration and you'd have to make a decision as long as you've got enough to get there, you would then make a decision about whether you filled up or whatever at the other end.
6: Right. So, without getting my calculator out, if you can do about twelve hundred kilometers, what's that? That's about uh, eight hundred miles or so, yeah, maybe a that, bit less. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Right. So, so more than your car.
1: Yes. Yes. Definitely. Right. Yeah. Okay.
6: So, the fuel that you put in your coach—is it quite heavy?
1: Oh, very much so, yeah, absolutely. And In fact, I mean, right. especially when we're doing things like, like local work and stuff, we, re- we only tend to put in, you know, sort of 50, 100 litres at a time because obviously yeah. weight is a huge impact on, on ha- the miles to the gallon and all sorts.
6: Absolutely. So your, your coach burns significantly more fuel when it's full of fuel yeah. than when it's got an amount of fuel sufficient for the journey. Yes. So the point I'm trying to make is that unlike most car drivers – you are applying a different strategy when you're driving the coach than oh, you're much driving so. your yeah, car, 100%, yeah. because you can carry a lot more fuel in the coach than is needed, yes. and the fuel is heavy. And we've just mentioned that the consumption is considerably different. Yeah. So it's the same on an airplane. Right. So when we are embarking on a flight, we do not apply the strategy of okay, well, it's it's a thousand miles. So, we'll just fill it up and that will give us, you know, four and a half thousand miles. That will be enough, okay? Right. (laughs) Because the costs of doing that are huge. Um, And roughly speaking, uh, ballpark figure, something like three or 4% of the fuel burn will just be in carrying the fuel that you don't need.
1: Yeah, okay.
6: You'll be burning fuel to carry fuel, okay? So, we plan our fuel very carefully. Um, Now, it's not just because of cost, although that is a a considerable factor. If we fill the airplane up with fuel, we can't put the same payload onto it. So we can't put as many people and their bags or any cargo. So it's a a commercial decision. So there has to be a framework and there is, and it's set out in the rules and regulations. So let's look at the, the various parts of the journey, if you like so when we as passengers get out onto the airplane um it's normally got the lights on and it will have some form of air conditioning whether it just be sort of ambient air or air conditioned air would that yep. be reasonable yeah no, if it absolutely. was the middle of the night you wouldn't expect to get onto it and have to you know illuminate by torchlight <laughs> no to get to no, your no, seat no you seat wouldn't seat. have
1: to use your phone light or whatever to just get to okay the aircraft.
6: <laughs> so in A lot of airports we will take, and we've talked about this before, we'll take power from the ground, so from the airport, and they will power up our aeroplane. But eventually we need to disconnect that umbilical cord and be responsible for our own heat and light, as it were. So that uses the auxiliary power unit, a little jet engine usually in the tail of the the aeroplane.
1: the APU, the APU.
6: There we go. So that actually burns fuel. Not a lot, but it does.
1: And presumably um, that's basically just a glorified t- uh, generator, essentially.
6: It's actually a very small jet engine. It's a sort of multi-million pound gas turbine engine. Oh, but oh, right, yeah, Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's a little jet engine in the back there. Um, so, but we're also going to need uh, to be able to start our engines and taxi out to the runway that we're going to depart from. So that's the first part of our fuel plan, and it's called taxi fuel. So it's the fuel from starting up the aeroplane, usually before the passengers get on, to getting to the departure runway. Now, if you're at somewhere uh, that's very quiet, so shall we say Norwich, (laughs) then you're not going to encounter too much in the way of taxi delays. No. But if you're at somewhere, say, for example, like Chicago O'Hare or Atlanta, then it may take you, or uh, JFK, when the weather's not so good, it might take you a very long time to get to the departure end of the runway. So maybe an hour or so could even be worse really? than that. Really? Gosh. So that's the first part. Uh, and all of these are, uh, these days, calculated by computer. So uh, typical taxi times are taken into account, etc., etc. So that's the first bit of the fuel calculation, the taxi fuel. Right. Once you've got out onto uh, the runway, you're then going to need fuel to take off, climb up to your initial cruising altitude, and then any further sort of step climbs. So sometimes if it's a long flight, you can't go up to your final cruising level because you're too heavy. So you go up to an intermediate level, burn off some fuel, then you're a bit lighter. You can go up and you can step up Uh, then. So basically, that's the cruise phase. Uh, all the way down to uh, all the way down through your descent, and your approach and landing, and that's your trip fuel. So basically, from the time that you take off to the time that you land, that right. is the trip fuel calculation, okay. right? So we've got fuel to get us to the runway, and we've got fuel for us to land. Um, probably wise to have contingency fuel. Yeah. You know, things don't always go as planned. No. So, like a lot of things in aviation, it's not just a simple figure. it's a, a complex equation. Now, I'll put this as simply as I can and then talk about what can be done. So the contingency fuel is typically five percent of the trip fuel. Right. So the trip fuel is the bit from getting starting your takeoff to the landing. So you take five percent of that figure, and that is your contingency. If there are some airports along the way that are favourable to you, you can reduce that down to 3%. And you might think, well, why would I want to do that? Well, you as the individual may not necessarily want to do that, but the company would like you to carry the least amount of unused fuel as possible. Because if everything goes to plan, you're not going to use this contingency fuel. But the rules say that you have to carry it. So between three and 5% is the figure for contingency. Now I'm going to guess that that's probably less than what you thought it was gonna be.
1: Very much so, yeah.
6: Okey-dokey. Right, so that's contingency. There is one final bit of uh, fuel that the rules say that you have to have, and that is final reserve fuel. Now, this is fuel sufficient to hold, for 30 minutes at 1,500 feet. The reason that figure is chosen is it's quite low to the ground. So remember, airplanes burn less fuel, the higher they are. So right. the closer to the ground, the fuel burns are higher. So um, so it's basically 30 minutes of holding fuel at the planned destination at 1,500 feet.
1: Okay. Uh, and would things like, like local atmospherics and things like that be taken into consideration, or is it just a general figure?
6: It's just a general figure, okay? okay? Now, if you're operating to uh, an airport with several runways, and the weather is forecast to be good, and these are independent runways, you do not need to take any fuel for a planned alternate destination, okay? And, The rules allow you to do that. Your airline may say, well, that's a little bit too optimistic, so we will always carry alternate fuel, Mm. Um, but there's no legal requirement to unless the company mandates it so. So if the weather conditions are not forecast to be super favorable at your destination, you will then carry alternate fuel, which is the fuel from the point that the go around is initiated, the whole missed approach, uh, then a climb up to your sort of cruising altitude to your alternate uh then the descent uh, approach and landing so in the example say of let's pick something um okay so we're flying from manchester to birmingham right and the weather at birmingham is not particularly great so if the we can't land at Birmingham. We're going to go to Bristol where the weather is glorious. Right. So well, easy, we yeah. will have, yeah, we'll have <laughs> our uh, taxi fuel, our trip fuel, our contingency fuel, our alternate fuel, and our con- uh, and our contingency fuel, if I didn't already mention that, and our final reserve fuel. So that's that's the figure that we come up with. And that is calculated by a computer. Right. And then we have the opportunity as a crew or as a captain to take extra fuel. And, and, and uh, that's
1: entirely at your discretion?
6: Well, that will come down to company policies. Uh, most airlines these days won't give you carte blanche. They will give you a, a, a set of margins to operate with it. And different airlines have different levels of management of this strategy because it's it's a bit like going into a casino and saying <laughs> you can have as much money as you like.
1: Right, okay, yeah.
6: The way that you're going to bet is going to be quite different than if you've got a a controlled amount of money, isn't yeah.
1: it? Yes, yeah, that's okay. true, yeah.
6: So there, there is one other set of fuel that I've not mentioned, and that's something called additional fuel, and this would be something that would be put on... Um, if you are, say for example, expecting uh, low visibility procedures, so fog, snow, that sort of thing. So this is already planned by the computer. So it might say, okay, I'm gonna give you 45 minutes of additional fuel because I know that the weather's not very good. Uh, and you might as a captain go, well, 45 minutes, that's thats a bit, you know, tight. I'm gonna take, you know, at least an hour and a half. Right, so yeah. I'll put on another 45 minutes or whatever. But, That's the nuts and bolts of it. Going back to the experience of your friend over uh, the garden fence, where we know that the weather is going to be poor, um, we will plan to take, whether it be additional fuel, if it's something that we, typically when you have low visibility procedures at an airport, The number of takeoff and landings that can take place in a given hour much much less because everything slows down just like on the motorway when it's heavy rain or fog Um, but also we will then look at the big picture and say okay right so it's forecast to be foggy but by the time we arrive it should be improving but let's just give ourselves a bit of margin and we'll take an hour's worth of holding fuel or you know whatever we feel fit so there's always that element of um what you might call professional planning right uh, you know based on what you, as the operating crew within the company can find uh, criteria uh, determined to do, so it may well have been that for your friends that uh, it was that when they landed wherever they diverted to, they may well have had copious amounts of fuel right. you know if that weather was anticipated to be that way. Typically, you're only allowed to do two approaches at an airfield with with poor weather. Um, You can do subsequent approaches, but there has to be a significant improvement. The idea being is that the the regulator doesn't want you to just keep trying and trying and trying. Until you 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 fall out of
1: the sky, essentially. Yeah. Yeah.
6: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, typically what happens is that, um, you know, like if you're trying to put, you know, a screw into a piece of furniture wherever and you, you just, can't, and it's not quite working. You, you just get a bit more frustrated, a bit more yeah. frustrated. And you become a bit more cavalier with it each time. Right. You hit, then You just hit it with a hammer. <gasps>
1: yeah. <laughs> Well, that's do. what they're trying, yeah, to that's avoid. trying to avoid. Yeah, essentially, get really annoyed with it. Well, I mean, it's yeah. uh, so. I mean, essentially, what I what I've learned from this actually is a much more scientific. I mean, you know, I I suppose from from my perspective, you would sort of make sure you carried an extra hundred liters or whatever to make for what you were expecting in part of your journey. Essentially, what I've learned from this, Al, is it, it's actually a much more scientific, much more calculated decision. I mean, it's it sort of worked out to the nearest liter, almost. What what what's required in, in the fuel to to do the job
6: yes absolutely and uh, most modern airlines these days will monitor the amount of fuel that is being carried by crews how much is being used whether it matches what the predictions are um and these sort of things so fuel is a massive massive cost to airlines both in the cost of purchasing it uh, but obviously ever increasingly with regards to co2 emissions mm so it is a a a very very carefully calculated amount and uh just throwing on some for you know mum and dad isn't uh, isn't the uh, the way that uh, professional crews operate these days
1: no no well it's uh, it's a very comforting to- uh, topic uh, al thank you very much as always
6: it's a pleasure
0: So, kicking off this week's first news story in the commercial segment is a story coming from the EDP-24, which is one of our local rags here in uh, the east of Anglia, in the UK. And uh, it's good news for us, actually, Matt, in Norwich, because our local airport, Norwich, they've had a special delivery. No,
1: no, no, you're wrong. That's
0: London Norwich. London Norwich. London Norwich. London Norwich Norwich International Airport. Correct. So, in the (laughs) early hours of Halloween... Uh, A passenger plane was lifted by crane over the Norwich Northern Distributor Road, or the NDR, as we all love to call it here. After years of taking to the skies, it was making its final journey to the City of Norwich Aviation Museum, having been donated as an exhibit. Trevor Eady from the museum said its journey was made in two parts: one leg over the fence of Norwich Airport and onto the NDR, and the second over another fence onto the museum's land. With favorable weather conditions, the move had been uh, com- uh, completed by about 5 a.m. The aircraft was formerly operated by Cityjet and has been a regular sight at Norwich Airport since Air UK took delivery in 1983. The BAE 146, Avro RJ. Aircraft is a 4 engine high-wing, T-tailed aircraft which operated out of many city airports. With its quiet operation having been the key to its success, it's been marketed as the Whisper Jet. It will be the only one of its kind on display at an aviation museum in the UK. Uh, Irish operator CityJet has uh, it withdrew all remaining BAE Systems Avro RJ85s ending a 27-year association with the regional jet and its predecessor the BAE 146. The aircraft registration number Echo India Romeo Juliet Foxtrot named Great Blasket Island left Dublin Airport for Keflavik International Airport on November the 2nd. The 22-year-old aircraft will make a stopover in Iceland before flying onto the USA. Uh, once the plane arrives at Spokane International Airport in Washington, it will be converted into a firefighting aircraft and then to service with Aero Elite. So, CityJet acquired the 95C aircraft from Misaba Airlines in 2007. It was used on behalf of Irish national flag carrier Aer Lingus on flights between London City and Dublin airports. Uh, CityJet chief uh, executive. Pat Bryan said, "For almost 30 years, the Avro BAE 146 and RJ85 fleet has served as well. And for some, there were a few tears shed today when Echo India Romeo Juliet Foxtrot departed for the last time. He said that we are now looking to the future as we grow our services on more modern aircraft, but there will always be a place in our hearts for the venerable Avros. CityJet no longer flies passenger services under its own branding. It currently operates a fleet of." 20 CRJ 900 aircraft from Copenhagen providing wet leases for SAS. It's good to see Matt. This is great news because obviously Norwich, uh, the aviation museum is, is really good. We were there for our 100th uh, know, that show. It feels like a lifetime
1: ago, ago now. Mm-hmm.
0: And they've got uh, they've got a Vulcan there, they've got a Nimrod there uh, on site, and they've also got obviously this uh, this RJ there now, and they've also got a large amount of other static military and uh, civilian um, aircraft on site, and it's really cheap to get in as well. That's just worth making a note of that as well. It is really cheap. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, and of course it was as I say, Nev. We'll have we'll have to when all this nonsense is over, we'll have to have a little bit of a a meet up there, you know, because it is a, a a truly wonderful museum it's worth yeah worth a visit definitely looking forward
3: to that and i must say although the ba146 is coming for a bit of stick in the chat room but uh, i've got a very soft spot for it and um yeah as it was uh, built uh, not that far from where I live, uh, back in the day, 1983, 84, I think it was. Uh, but uh, yeah, brilliant aircraft, which has served many routes uh, really well around the world. So yeah, it'd be great to get back to Norwich, wouldn't it? To uh, uh,
1: this, this has just been sent in by uh, Mr. Warner. This is this is a photo of. A, is it is it a quintig's RJ100?
0: Oh, Quintex. Yeah. Oh, Quintex. There we go. Yeah, yeah, is, absolutely. Yeah, RJ. Yeah. Live
1: photos coming in, you know, on the fly. There we go. let me see what i did there uh, yeah. <laughs> okay sorry i i, I see you about the love
0: love for the chat room uh, i i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say them all but there's one on there that says bae 146 four hair dryers in close formation oh anyway
6: <laughs> that's a bit brutal
0: so matt you've got the next story and uh, it's all about the buy one get one freeze
1: Right. Okay. I, I'm not really sure what to do with that information. It's uh, yeah. Uh, CBSNews.com is the website, and it just airline deals is the headline. So the airline industry is ramping up its incentives to travelers with airlines worldwide, attempting to coax passengers into returning to the skies by offering two for one deals and other creative promotions. Alaska Air Group had a buy one get one free offer, which ended on the 31st of October, in which customers who bought one ticket could get a second ticket on the same itinerary for just the cost of the taxes and fees. Alaska Air marketed the deal as a way for customers to get an entire row of seats to themselves um, as middle seats were blocked out for social distancing during the promo. Uh, Malaysia's largest airline Air Asia, is currently offering uh, unlimited flights uh, within the country at a fixed price at £95 for unlimited travel up until June 2021. Ireland-based Ryanair is giving customers a buy one get one free ticket on flights across the United Kingdom. It's the first time the budget carrier has ever offered such a promotion. Uh, such incentives bring in little revenue but the true goal behind the deals is to get people talking about their flights. Airlines are hoping that recent passengers will tell friends and family how clean and safe their trips were and are slowly eating away at the fear of flying that has taken hold as a result of a certain pandemic that I'm not going to say out loud. In the UK, uh, TUI has shaken off lockdown woes by announcing flights to new holiday destinations from Norwich Airport, which is yet more good news for our local uh, international London-based airport. Uh, Next winter, flights (laughs) on offer from TUI will include those uh, to Tenerife. And from summer 2022, routes will also include Corfo, Dalaman... um, Corfo? Sorry? Corfo? Corf- Cor- Corfu, 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 Corfu. Um, uh, Heraklion, what on uh, where, whatever. Heraklion, Heraklion. Bless mm. you. Uh, Ibiza, Menorca, Palmer, Rhodes, and Paphos. Uh, Richard Pace, managing director of Norwich Airport, said, "We welcome to his announcement and look forward to seeing a return to passenger growth." Which, uh, let's be honest, we Do you it, think this is? is say- the, do you think this is the solution, though? Maybe sort of trying to encourage people to. To fly like locally, um, you know, using their local airports. I mean, does, does it does it make it any safer, or? or does it not really matter i don't know nev i'm going to ask this question to you because obviously you do a bit more flying than the rest of us um i mean no, do, do you do you think local is the answer or, or is it just as safe at heathrow as it is well no else?
3: it's not it's not about safety is it really because i mean it's safe whatever way you do it but uh, uh the problem has been is the regional airports uh, certainly in the uk have been uh, you know decimated over the last mm. A few months with uh, Fly B obviously uh, going out of business, although hopefully they might come back next year. But there's you know, I think the importance of regional airports cannot be understated. Uh, They provide a very, very good service Mm. um, to people, you know, at uh, either end of the country and in between as well. Mm. Good point. Good point.
0: I think this is important for me and you, especially in the area we live, Matt, that to have this ability to be able to fly to these destinations from an airport that is. 20 minutes away
1: absolutely i'm 100 percent with you there carlos the only issue is when you can buy a flight for 70 or 80 pounds to say let's let's use toulouse as an example right if you wanted to do that the same flight that myself and owen went on i don't know how many years ago now what two years ago whatever it is when we went to to toulouse and i think the return flights were like less than 50 quid each or something stupid they weren't yeah they weren't that expensive yeah i dare say if you wanted to do something similar from um from norwich you'd be looking at 350 pounds <laughs> exactly to, and, that and that's where yeah, they need to sort
0: things out yeah i mean yeah.
1: you know i I don't know because it's one of those it's like because you're mm. never going to get someone like ryanair go into a small airport like norwich God, can uh, you imagine matt Co yeah i mean wow yeah. Yes, I'm being told apparently they used to fly into Newquay all the time. Actually, yes, they did because I, I I nearly went on a, on 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 a, on a flight into there. But uh, I, I guess uh, Norwich being in the essentially the arse end of nowhere, I I, I suspect there is uh, uh, not enough footfall, shall we say, to tempt mm-hmm. um, you know a low cost carrier into the area. But anyway, um, Nev, uh, you've got the next Nev. story.
0: Nev VAT.
3: <laughs> yeah, this is a bit of a um, brace ugh, yourselves, a everyone. <laughs> can of worms coming up here, stand by. Uh, This is on the uh, trbusiness.com and it was also on uh, Sky News as well. Headline says Heathrow Airport to launch legal review over VAT free shopping ban. Now before we start, it's important to note that duty and VAT are not the same things, but. Heathrow Airport is preparing to launch a legal challenge against the government's decision to ban VAT free shopping for tourists to the UK from the end of this year with the end of the Brexit transition period. I beg your pardon? Yes, we haven't used that word for a while, have we? Oh. Um,
1: Oh, it's like welcoming back an old friend, isn't it?
3: i know well i think oh, there'll I be plenty to talk about now. as we come into the end of uh, december i'm sure yes. well free the uh, duty-free uh, shopping giant and global blue the tax refund specialist uh, are also said to be participating in the legal action so let's have a look at what the changes are currently non-eu visitors to the uk are able to claim a refund of the vat on goods bought in the uk and taken home From the 1st of January, this is to be removed, making the UK the only country in Europe not to offer this to international visitors. Just like to point out that we are not actually in Europe at this point, but anyway... (laughs) <laughs> uh, but, um, passengers travelling from the UK to non-EU countries will no longer be able to buy tax-free goods such our, as electronics being ignored and clothing here, at airports. But this concession, concession will be removed following concerns that the VAT is not always passed on to consumers at airports and that it puts high street stores at a disadvantage. The VAT retail export scheme will end and overseas visitors will no longer be able to obtain VAT refunds on items bought in British shops to take home as hand luggage. The scheme is to be removed over concerns that it is costly and overly burdensome for HMRC to run, with that likely to increase if EU visitors could make use of it at the end of the transition period. But because of Brexit, two more things need to happen so that EU and non-EU duty standards are aligned. British passengers travelling to EU countries will be able to buy duty-free goods, including alcohol and tobacco products, at British international ports of departure. This is likely to increase sales of alcohol and tobacco at airports. The allowance for duty-free alcohol, tobacco and other goods brought in by passengers from non-EU countries will be significantly increased. So why are Heathrow and other airports actually challenging the ban? Well, the judicial review, which has been under discussion for several weeks, is to have been drawn up on the basis that the consultation ahead of the Treasury's announcement of the revised policy was unfair one source close to the move accused the treasury of failing to conduct proper and detailed economic uh, analysis and failing to understand the implications this will have for job losses across the sectors retail bosses including the head of marks and spencer and selfridges have previously warned that banning vat free shopping for overseas visitors would get billions of pounds worth of reduction uh, to spending in stores and cost the Exchequer somewhere in the region of £2 billion, in lost tax revenue. It would also put around 70,000 jobs at risk. In a joint statement issued to Sky News, the claimant said, we continue to work with Treasury Minister and officials regarding this matter. Some airports will obviously see a large gain from this, Stansted for one, as only a handful of flights are extra EU, and the duty-free income from alcohol and tobacco sales that will be made on UK to EU flights will increase for international airports this is going to be a major difference in revenue so for any shops that do not sell uh, products Uh, that do not sell products uh, that sell products which are uh, covered by duty-free, this will be disastrous for them potentially, uh, which is uh, clothes, electronics and jewellery for example. So there's a bit to be worked out here I think, and I would imagine with the government slightly involved in other things at the moment, uh, this may have been kicked down the road slightly, but they have to come up with some sort of solution uh, before the end of this year,
1: is it? Is there something else going on that that might be keeping them busy,
3: Nev? Maybe, maybe there <laughs> is. Yeah. Okay, fair enough.
1: Well, I, I mean, well done for doing it for for a, a sterling job in trying to make an impossible subject sort of vaguely palatable. Good work
3: there, sir. Well, so I think this this is a subject which has been bubbling under for months, probably years, actually, and uh, we're just going to have to see where it ends up. As always, it'll be some sort of you know arrangement or compromise or or what have you. But uh, it's, there's a bit to play out yet, I think.
1: Indeed. <laughs> Does anybody use gg3 you know, uh,
3: I do from uh, Gibraltar, yes, and from uh, Fuerteventura, yes, very much so. Yeah. Uh, no. No, I always bring it back in with me. Yes, I, I don't actually uh, uh, take it out with me. I always bring it back in.
4: I don't think I ever bought anything from the Duty Free when I was going from the UK back to the US other than maybe a chocolate bar or something like that. Oh.
1: Marmite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Contraband. Yeah.
0: No, 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 yeah, no. no I, guys, yeah. You're missing the whole thing here, guys. You know what everyone buys from Duty Free.
1: Gin.
0: It, <laughs> no, there's one thing that everyone here has brought from duty-free once in their life. No, Toblerone.
1: Oh, I, I bought it from the supermarket up the road.
0: No, that's no. the only place you can buy Toblerone, I'm sure of it. No,
1: it's not. <laughs> it's, yeah,
4: it's in the not chat easy. room, Stephen H just got Toblerone. Yeah. It's a price. You know what the prize is? It's a Cadbury, Cadbury. bar. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 We'll, we'll all do a Cadbury's bar. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Uh, lovely.
1: Okay, we'll move on to the next story then, please. Armando, this is with you. Uh,
4: yeah, this next story is from either BAM now or beham now or maybe it's just Birmingham now. But uh, a new Birmingham... Actually, when I first saw the story, I thought we were talking about Birmingham in the UK, but we're actually talking about Birmingham in Alabama. Uh, so... Birmingham Aerospace Aviation Public Charter School will touch down in 2022. I love the picture that they have. They have a Lockheed Constellation on there. Um, So Alabama Aerospace and Aviation High School, I'm just going to call it the AAAHS, is a free aerospace-focused public charter school uh, starting in Birmingham in 2022. Here are the basics. So AAAHS will be a free aviation aerospace-focused public charter school located on the campus of the Southern Museum of Flight. Uh, behind AAAHS is Birmingham native and program director of the local startup, BuildUp, Ruben Morris. Uh, he says, I grew up with a dream of flying F-15s and retiring as a Delta pilot, but nobody, no one could tell me what to do to make that dream happen. It was a dream deferred. Uh, so while Morris is unable to find the resources, or was unable to find the resources needed to become a pilot, uh, the concept of flying never truly subsided in him. So in Birmingham... He saw a large opportunity for aviation and aerospace, along with a need for pilots, especially aircraft mechanics of color. He also wondered why Birmingham, home to the state's largest airport, wasn't exploding in aviation training and jobs. He says, I started dreaming about what it would be like to build a school that could produce the next generation of pilots, mechanics, engineers, and computer scientists. Pretty soon, his vision became a new route for the deferred dreams of his childhood. So, according to, the Mor- to Morris, the school will feature strong uh, core academics along with four distinct industry aligned pathways focused on aviation and aerospace. They are aerospace, drone and uh, pilot licensing, so uh, full size pilot and drone pilot licensing, aircraft mechanics, and computer sciences. The school will house grades nine through 12, with a full capacity being from 550 to 600 students. There will also be sports clubs, extracurricular activities for students to participate in. Um, So how is this school different than a a regular high school? Their goal is to prepare students for success in college, the military and aerospace defense and aviation industry. One of the main differences featured at AAAHS is that their hands-on approach to teaching, for example, will have students access to access to flight and drone simulators so they can earn hours towards receiving their pilot's licenses. AAAHS is also partnering with Tuskegee University to provide students with dual enrollment courses. Um, So, uh, great story here, I've been to Alabama. Alabama actually has a a much more rich aviation history than most people think. Um, Huntsville, Alabama is a home to uh, the the Huntsville Space Center. Uh, There's just... Hundreds of years, hundreds, I've only been around for 100 and so years, but uh, probably, probably about as much right almost 100 years of aviation history in Alabama. And then we all know the Tuskegee Airmen and I've been to the Tuskegee Airfield. Uh, it is a city. It's just Tuskegee, Alabama. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is very cool. Yeah, and uh, and I believe Captain Jeff uh, went to school in Alabama also. So uh, very cool. Oh, it's a
1: very impressive alumni. Then, if uh, you know, if Captain Jeff was there. I mean, goodness me, where we need we need to immediately find out where the plaque is. Maybe he'll <laughs> be
4: the the guest speaker at the ribbon cutting.
1: Oh, I th- mm. I th- I think that's I think that's completely correct. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, I'd imagine Jeff has got his star in the pavement outside. Well, of course, absolutely. Name. I yeah. I expect yeah. nothing less. Yeah. So moving on to the next story, Nev. Uh, you've got one about uh, drones doing some weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, shame we haven't got Ryan Weather still actually, isn't it, because
3: mm. uh, uh, this is on the uh, LiveScience.com website and uh, it says, with an estimated 300 active volcanoes on Earth, the challenge is how to monitor them all to send out early warnings before they erupt. Changes to sulphur dioxide and carbon dioxide gas emissions can signal more activity in a volcano. But measuring volcanic gas emissions is also no easy task. Now researchers have designed specially adapted drones to help gather data from an active volcano in Papua New Guinea. Uh, The drones could help local communities monitor nearby volcanoes and forecast future eruptions. Their measurements could also tell us more about the most inaccessible, highly active volcanoes on the planet and how uh, volcanoes contribute to the global carbon cycle. The Manam volcano is located on an island just 10 kilometers wide that sits off the north coast of PNG. The island is home to over 9,000 people and Manam Motu, as it's known locally, is one of the most active volcanoes in the country. In 2004, a major eruption from uh, Manam forced the entire island to evacuate to the mainland. Uh, MANAM hasn't been studied in detail, but we could see satellite data that it was producing strong emissions. Said the volcanologist uh, Emma Liu from uh, University College London, who led the research team. manham's steep slopes make it incredibly dangerous to even contemplate collecting gas samples on foot, whereas the drones could sa- safely fly right into the billowing plumes, helping the research team measure its volcanic gas emissions more accurately. Drones flew over 2,000 metres high into manham's highly turbulent volcanic plumes, and some six kilometres Away from their launching pad well out of sight uh, of the uh, pilots. On each flight the drone took images of Manam and its two craters measuring the gas composition right above the rising plumes and collected four bags full of extra gas for rapid analysis when the aircraft touched down that's pretty uh pretty handy use of the technology there isn't it especially where it's uh, completely inaccessible to uh, to humans very very cool video
1: that i was playing out while you were reading
3: that mm. and uh,
1: if you're listening to the audio version of the show make sure you look at uh, this this story on uh, in the show notes because as i say the video is absolutely cracking on this
0: i wonder how many drones i lose in this um in this particular exercise because you know, you've only got to get a bit of sort of heat or something that might affect the um flying characteristics of said drone and it could end up gone. True. And they're not kind of they're not using kind of cheap drones either, are they? No. They are no. they are using DJIs, I think, on there as well. This. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 I, I know. It's, as I say, because there must be sort of massive like, thermals and stuff. I mean, the heat rising and all that kind of thing that must mm. have a real effect on the way but, that yeah. the thing flies. And, and
0: also the camera mat, you well, know, the yeah, camera lens. True. Yeah,
1: well, the camera lens will probably be okay a bit longer than things like propellers and things like mm. you know. You, you just sort of expect them to sort of melt, really. But anyway, there we are. Mm. It is what it is.
0: <laughs> so, moving on to uh, to the last story. This one um, is on simple flying. Dot com this comes from, and uh, for those of you who are tired of having a boring office or an office in a building or you know in an office here at home, uh, how about having a boeing seven two seven office oh, my goodness because a former japan airlines boeing seven two seven is to become a Bristol office space. So the Boeing uh, 727, once flown by Japan Airlines, will soon become an office and event space in Bristol (gasps) here in the UK. A local businessman by the name of Johnny Palmer made big news in Bristol after he purchased the 53-year-old out-of-service Boeing 727 from Cotswold Airport, formerly RAF Kemble. Uh, 37-year-old Palmer is the managing director and founder of BITCH, a UK-based event production company. The aircraft will be transported some 35 miles down the road to Brislington Trading Estate along the M4 and M32 in February next year, where it will be set in place at its new home installed on top of shipping containers. These containers will be covered with paintings of clouds to make it look like it's flying. Uh, Palmer also hopes to use the space for private dining events arranging to have local chefs take over the kitchen of course this will only take place after covid restraints are lifted Uh, the boeing 727 was first delivered to jal or japan airlines back in december 1967. the 727-100 is 133 feet long or 40.5 meters and typically flew 106 passengers in two classes this particular jet would have likely flown domestic services. It then flew as a corporate jet registered in the United States and then in the Cayman Islands, flying under registrations November 445 Sierra, Victor Romeo, uh, Charlie Bravo Echo, Victor Romeo, Charlie Lima Mike, and Victor Romeo, Charlie Mike November. And finally, it ended up with the registration, Victor Papa, Charlie Mike November. I have to say, guys, and we were talking about this yesterday on the Zoom call, me and John, that uh, I, I, if I had a big enough garden and I had the money... <laughs> I would, and you no, weren't I married would, to your wife. And I wasn't married. <laughs> I'd be divorced. Uh, I would love to have the fuselage. I'd live in a fuselage of an aircraft. I mean, c-
1: certainly the video that I was playing there, I mean, it looks very plush and mm. comfortable and all that kind of thing. I, I, I just have to do a sort of quick hats off here to Mr. Warner because as we were reading out that story, I noticed my phone go off. And this very picture of that very aircraft that he took winged its way literally to me so this is that very aircraft um that he just just
0: pinged oh parked at Kemble, yeah
1: and he and he doesn't have the luxury of the latency either this time so it's all very good i, I just very i just just like wow I, I, I our audience are amazing aren't they
0: and i tell you what we we were saying as well being john was saying yesterday there are still um seven twenty sevens still flying uh in the world at the moment um, doing various jobs and stuff. Um, I think we I, saw one of these farmer a few years ago, guys.
1: Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. I, I, mm. I, I feel like maybe we've found our location for the four hundredth. <laughs> No, might be a bit out of our price range, perhaps. I, I,
0: I think I think we'll give a, we'll give Andrew a ring at the plane Reclaimers and see right. if we can have um, one kicking around. Yeah. Can't, can't nab a nab a seven four seven. one. we'll put some one. banners
1: up inside it. You yeah. know, make it look nice. You know, yeah. <laughs> we'll oh dear. So uh,
0: that is where we are going to bring the commercial news to a close. So uh, yeah, we're going to move on then to some military so i'm going to hand things over to armando
4: okay not what the show notes says but uh good job
0: carlos Um... (laughs) (laughs) i was waiting for someone to press a button but there was no button pressing going on (laughs) how
4: about i just do do my usual matt if you're willing to press the button do you mind hitting the military button ah do anything for you mate here we go
0: It's more time for an after-party at the end, let's be honest.
4: <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So this first story is from thedrive.com, amongst other places, a thousand other places that you can probably find some, uh, some kind of summary on this. But uh, last week, the U.S. Special Operations Forces, including members from the U.S. Navy's Elite SEAL Team 6, have rescued an American citizen who was kidnapped just days before that in the northwest African country of Niger in a raid in neighboring Nigeria. Uh, You can read more about that abduction of the 27-year-old Philip Walton from his home in the Nigerian village of Masalata, uh, less than five miles from the Nigerian border on October 26. Um, There was some previous reporting on that. Uh, At the time, at least the drive had predicted that there was going to be some type of special operations mission to rescue Mr. Walton. So ABC News was the first to report the operation which occurred at, as, uh, at an as yet undisclosed location in Northern Nigeria. It was conducted with the cooperation of the Nigerian uh, uh, forces. The Pentagon has now confirmed that the rescue mission took place on the early hours of October 31st, 2020, and was successful with Walton now safely in the care of U.S. Uh, the US State Department. So according to... Uh, Uh, Pentagon spokesman, they said that U.S. forces conducted a hostage rescue operation during the hours of uh, early hours of 31 October uh, to recover an American citizen held hostage by a group of armed men. This American citizen is safe and is now in the care of the U.S. State Department. No U.S. military personnel were injured during the operation. We appreciate the support of our international partners in conducting this operation. Uh, So details about the exact composition of the raiding force beyond the Inclusion of the SEAL teams uh, or the SEAL team are limited. The CIA provided intelligence about Walton's location and the Marine Corps Special Operations units deployed to Northwest Africa helped determine where he was being held. That's all according to ABC News. The raid also included an extremely long distance movement of forces via multiple C-17 Globemasters uh, transport aircraft and the employment of a quartet. I like that, a quartet uh, <laughs> of CV-22B Ospreys, uh, tilt rotors and MC-130, uh, probably MC-130J, special operations transports, which were pushed through Rota Spain before continuing on to their target. AC-130 gunships and a large contingent of aerial refueling tankers also supported this operation. Uh, the armed group who took Walton remains unidentified, but it is said to have not been associated with any known terrorist group in the region pointing to some form of criminal enterprise. This would align with some of the intelligence reports about the circumstances of Walton's abduction. However, ABC News at least reported that criminal groups in the region do have a history of selling foreign hostages to terrorist organizations. Um, So kudos to those special operations air crews and the uh, joint force, the Marines, uh, the Navy SEALs and everybody that conducted that operation. This is one of the things that is rehearsed uh, incessantly in the military, especially in special operations, especially joint operations in austere environments. So in this uh, case, it uh, it worked out very well. So congratulations to them. And uh, if anybody ever takes a look at a map, it it'll mislead you how far it is from Europe to Nigeria. Um, what, what, and when you start,
1: what what's a map?
4: Yeah. Yeah, Google Earth nowadays. Ah, right. Uh, yeah, because,
1: ah, Google used, Maps. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Sorry, right. I, I, I'm fully on board now. Yeah, sorry. I thought you yeah, we were talking used, about one of those paper things that you used to have to fold out. <laughs>
4: <laughs> uh, they probably had some of those on board, actually. But I'll, I'll bet you, if if you use the the little ruler tool in Google Earth and draw a li- drew a line from London to Nigeria, uh, you would probably realize how far that that distance actually is. So again, uh, kudos to these guys. Well done.
1: Absolutely. So uh, on to story number two. And uh, Nev, this is with you.
3: Yes, this is on the uh, taskandpurpose.com. And a bit of sad news here, actually. Um, It says that the Blue Angels Legacy Hornets are going to be conducting their final Pensacola flyover. And uh, this is going to take place... Uh, at uh, we'll come up with the date in a minute I'm sure but um, uh, on Wednesday actually uh, they're going to conduct a final flight on the FA-18 A, B, C and D Legacy Hornets uh, which is going to take place at uh, between 4 and 4.30 in the afternoon the final flight of the Legacy Hornets signifies the official transition of the Blue Angels to the uh, FA-18 E and F Super Hornet platform we are incredibly honoured to have the opportunity to salute those teams who flown, maintained and supported this platform over three decades of service, says Commander Brian Kesslering, US Navy Blue Angels commanding officer and flight leader. We deeply appreciate the expertise and operational knowledge Blue Angels past and present have brought to the team and we look forward to enhancing our operations as we fully transition to to flying the Super Hornet. The 2020 show season, season marked the end of the service life of the aircraft which the team has flown for 34 years the 2021 show season will be the blue angels first year flying the super hornet platform undoubtedly 2020 presented the team with unprecedented challenges that said the unique nature of this year also allowed our team to deepen our interaction with past teams in particular those teams that had transitioned to new aircraft during their tenure, said Kessling. Uh, the uh, engagement has helped us lay the foundation for a safe and effective transition for our team's pilots, support and maintenance personnel, as well as uh, postured us to take on the high operating tempo of the team's highly anticipated 2021 air show season and its 75th anniversary. The uh, lo- final flight will take off and land at, uh, in Pensacola, lasting approximately 30 minutes flyover locations include but not limited to Orange Beach, Gulf Shores, Fort Morgan, Ferry Pass, Navarre Beach, Pensacola Beach, uh, Perdido Key, Community Maritime Park and Palafox Street in downtown Pensacola. Uh, The Blue Angels will be visible from many locations throughout the Pensacola area and along this route the public is reminded to continue to follow health and safety guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to help prevent the spread of COVID-19. Uh, just a correction, actually, this actually happened on Wednesday of this week, uh, the 4th of November. So it would have been uh, fascinating to see all that, I'm sure. But uh, incredible, Armando, that uh, they've had such a, well, it's over three decades of, of service with these aircraft, isn't that?
4: Yeah, I didn't realize that myself, that uh, that is a long time flying one airplane, which probably explains why they're so good at doing so. Yeah, <laughs> um, You know, and I, and I guarantee you that in the off-season, uh, this year they're going to be working hard with that super hornet um uh, to have the same level of accuracy you know with the right amount of risk because so, I...
1: so forgive, go ahead matt so yeah so forgive my naivety here now the super hornet rings a bell for me isn't that what the red arrows fly
0: no
4: it is not
1: so what what do the red arrows fly then
0: the hawk
1: uh, yeah oh is it so the hawker no right sorry why the do hawker. i why do i know why do i know that name then i think
0: to... it's because that was the one that me you so, and micah looked round at So hot t1 the pittsburgh oh, Hawk t1 sorry the yeah. pittsburgh air yeah. show matt
1: okay all right so just, it really jumped out at me as something that i i mm. thought i i knew but uh, clearly not
0: <laughs> actually, Jonathan 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 yeah. Warner in the chat room says that uh, apparently one F eighteen is great, six is just better.
1: Right. I mean, you could say that about it. life in general, though, couldn't you? Really? I mean, you know, why have one when you can have six?
0: <laughs> actually, Jonathan says. He, actually, one of the things Jonathan says he's always wanted to see the Blue Angels. Oh, really? Mm.
1: Indeed. Indeed. Uh, so, yeah. I'm going to ask a question here. What is the difference between the Hornet and the Super Hornet, then, Armando?
4: Uh, There's a technology insertion in there. So I think it's got more advanced avionics, more advanced targeting pods. Uh, I think it's got a little bit uh, heavier payload. Um, I know performance wise, it can take off and land in shorter distances. Um, I I think probably that the the biggest thing in it is your, uh, your avionics and your and your integration, making it uh, a really interconnected fighter um, with, with a lot more advanced avionics systems.
0: Wow, okay. Uh, Matt, uh, Matt, chat room, Micah.
1: Oh, okay, uh, I haven't got access to that currently. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm in the uh, wrong Micah
0: bit. says in the chat room, Matt, that uh, apparently uh, you interviewed an F-18 pilot at Farnborough tw- in 2016.
1: Oh, okay, all right, yes, and also apparently it was the first time that we all worked together, which is quite nice, isn't it?
0: Oh. oh was,
4: that was that F-18 pilot Nick Anderson? Uh, <laughs> no.
0: no 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 this is 2016 2016 Armando <laughs> Oh he didn't like us back then not 1916 anyway no, so... next story is uh... <laughs> oh love you Nick uh... love you Nick yeah <laughs> uh
4: yeah so this next story it's a good heartwarming story the this is actually from the air force from uh, air education and training command uh from Columbus Air Force Air Force base Mississippi uh, they say, for many, becoming a pilot in the United States Air Force is a dream that can be achieved through the traditional means of commissioning as an officer, but every so often it is a unique story brought to life in this process. Uh, this is the story of 2nd Lieutenant Clifford Mouin, uh, First uh, 41st Flying Training Squadron student pilot currently undergoing uh, SUPT, or Specialized Undergraduate Pilot Training, at Columbus Air Force Base. Moa is originally from the Republic of Cameroon, a country in Africa that shares borders with both Nigeria and Chad. Uh, He is, along with millions of others, entered into a diversity visa lottery with the hopes of uh, immigrating. This U.S. government lottery program provides countries with a historically low rate of immigration to the U.S. a chance to move here on a green card visa. So to qualify, the applicant must have a high school diploma, two years work experience in the last five years, in an occupation that requires at least two years of training, if you can track that. The winners are actually chosen randomly by a computer program. So Lieutenant Moi, along with 3,000 others, were selected from Cameroon's population of 25 million. He won the lottery. Uh, He was contacted by the US Embassy, got his paperwork together, and came to America in 2013. The challenges began immediately. His first obstacle was to quickly overcome the language barrier. Uh, According to him, he says the language, culture, weather, and even food was so different here my friends laughed at me because I thought August was cold. Uh, even through the challenges, I knew it was a matter of time before I overcame those obstacles by making friends, watching television, and adapting to the area. Uh, Mo actually enlisted into the Air National Guard in Michigan as a medical logistics uh, specialist. While, under, uh, while going through basic military training, he worked with an immigration officer to, to receive his citizenship upon graduation. In his Air Force enlisted career, he also worked at the Michigan National Guard Joint Force Headquarters as part of a state partnership program office. Later, he was selected to represent his new homeland as part of the honor guard responsible for carrying the American and state flags at official uh, ceremonies in partner countries. So with the help of the Michigan National Guard state tuition assistance program, and using his GI Bill, which is a educational advantage um, or program for military. Uh, He went to to college at the College of Aviation at Western Michigan University to pursue an aviation science degree while getting his private pilot's license. After completing his bachelor's degree program, he was hired by the 171st Air Refueling Squadron, 127th Wing at Selfridge, Selfridge Air National Guard Base in Michigan. Now, set with the calling of becoming a pilot, He was sent to officer training school and commissioned as an Air Force officer in 2019 and ended up there at Columbus, Mississippi. So now he is in uh, phase two of SUPT, or pilot training learning aircraft flight characteristics, emergency procedures, takeoff and landing procedures, aerobatics, formation flying, all in the T-6 Texan. No big deal, just a a few things here and there. Uh, After that, he will continue on to phase three in the uh, airlift, tanker track flying the t1 jayhawk this course uh, centers on crew coordination crew management uh, resource management instrument training cross-country flying amongst other things uh, after he graduates he'll be back at altus air force base in uh, oklahoma where he'll fly the kc-135 strato tanker before returning back to michigan as an official air force pilot so this is a great story and it's a should be a nice motivating story for any of those that are overseas thinking that becoming a U.S. Air Force pilot isn't uh, achievable for them. This is just proof that with hard work, um, you can you can do anything.
1: Incredible, isn't it?
4: Absolutely love story. it.
1: And what, what a great story. Um, mm. You know that sort of sort of reaching out. You know, sort of sharing the love a bit. Really, I'm I'm all for anything like this. Really.
0: Yeah, yeah. me too. Okay. So we're going to close with the military then for this week. Thanks, Armando, for all the stories. Good work, as always. And we're going to move on to some listener feedback. Mm. So Armando, we've got some, uh, some feedback with this first one with you. And uh, who's this one from? Yeah, this is from
4: Jacob Darlington Brown. And this is in reference to the story we did last week about those Lufthansa 747s that were stuck uh, in the Netherlands. Um, his feedback says, Hey hey guys, with the, uh, story of the 747 not being able to take off from a smaller airport because of mysterious red tape, it's possible that the reason they're not allowed to take off is because that particular airport's fire and rescue service isn't certified to handle the big jets. Uh, each airport is certified with a particular fire and rescue category with category 10 being at the top level category nine, slightly less, et cetera, et cetera. So it's his guess that, uh, Uh, for a 747 to be able to take off. It needs a certain level of fire rescue category. And if that airport doesn't have it, it won't be able to take off unless they call up a few extra trucks to come over from a larger airport to increase their category to the next level up um, to be there in case something goes kaboom in his words. That's his two Australian dollar cents. Uh, from Jacob Darlington
1: Brown. <laughs> I mean, I actually saw this email come in actually during the week, and I sort of replied to him. And it was, you know, because I mean, I was making a bit of a sort of laugh, well, not a laugh and a joke out, but it was just like, you know, the concrete, the con, you know, the 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 tarmac's hard enough and all that kind of thing. You know, it can take the weight. What it was it didn't even pop into my head that there could be that that might even be the reason. Because as I read that email, I just thought, yeah, that that actually does kind of make perfect sense, doesn't it?
4: I will bet you that is just one of the obstacles that mm. these guys have to go through right now to try to get those airplanes out of there. Uh, I, I tried to look up for some follow-ups on this, and it, and it, and it really is. I mean, there was a, a miscommunication. They thought that these aircraft were going to go in, land for their last time, and be disassembled right there on that airfield. And, uh, and apparently nobody, nobody told Lufthansa that. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Yeah, it, is, is they, the I'm sure they were probably wondering why they were driving up with like this big sledgehammer yeah, machine cutter, yeah, cutting <laughs> plane reclaimers, plane rec- reclaimers, yeah, in, of instead yeah, of absolutely. a jet bridge and a nice Mercedes bus.
1: You you want to mm-hmm. do what with the engines? Sorry, <laughs> yeah, yeah. indeed. I think we've got a question. We've got a
0: yeah, Masher in the chat room makes a very good yeah, point. Good point. Yeah, wouldn't uh, they have needed the same for the landing?
4: It's Oh, it's possible. Mm. I actually don't know the the real answer to that. I don't know if, if they had um, special permits to go in there, uh, you know, going in their light and, uh, you know, with a certain amount of fuel and certain amount of people on board that, that they may have been able to. Uh, I'm sure all of that
0: was was pre-planned.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
4: Just,
0: well, well look, know, lift, lift, lift time take off. Lufthansa, if you're listening and you want to donate a 747 to PTUK with some land, we'll gladly take one. I've got, gladly I've got enough PTUK we'll crap, crap in my shed
1: already. I can't... I can't.
0: Matt's got a, Matt's got <laughs> no, a huge I, back garden. Not we enough could...
1: for a 747. I don't think I'd get a Cessna in it at the moment. <laughs>
4: You could, I think you could probably fit a 747 tire in your backyard. Possibly, there is a slim chance. Yes, I
0: mean, what Matt, what Matt <laughs> fails, what Matt's failed to tell everyone is the fact that Matt still got a massive swimming pool inflated quite, in his backyard.
1: You know, there, it needs to be <laughs> silence immediately. Uh, actually, I was. Do you know what? While we were talking about that story, Armando, I was, I was actually thinking because I, I there was quite often a time where you give me uh, like when you when you were living here and that, and so many times like I get a message from you because you were literally. Flying overhead and and all that kind of thing. I, I did sort of saying saying about that and and that. I, like, I I miss those days, dude.
4: Yeah, you know yeah. now we have flight radar, but yeah, I would I, I would usually send a, a command and control text to Matt and Carlos and saying, hey, we're using your house as a waypoint tonight.
1: Yes. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, because you can see there's a massive, uh, like an old style mill where, where I live. So you've got quite a good marker there as a sort of yeah. standing out point as to where I go. And I live literally next door to the old mill in Tower Mill Road, literally. So uh, there we go. Yeah,
4: we we used uh, the North Sea quite a bit uh, for our our overwater training. And mm-hmm. uh, Bungie made a, a great uh, turn point for us at 500 feet in the middle of the night.
1: Yeah, don't I know it?
0: Yeah. yeah. Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. Your fault.
1: Yeah. Okay, on to the next email then, please, Carlos. So
0: the next email is from Richard Adams. And the subject is the forthcoming lecture at uh, uh, about the air transport auxiliary so he says in his uh, feedback you'll be glad to hear that there is another air transport auxiliary zoom lecture coming in november from the maidenhead heritage center this one uh, about the is about the 173 civilians that flew for white waltham based air transport auxiliary that lost their lives in world war ii Very appropriate The lectures is to be on the 11th. If any listeners would like to receive log-on details for the lecture, uh, all they've got to do is email info at maidenheadheritage.org.uk and you will receive within 24 hours uh, before the lecture. While they are free, the museum would appreciate donations, of course, as they have not been able to open physically much this year. Yeah, very true. And you can also go to um, maidenheadheritage.org.uk forward slash donate if you want to donate as well to that great charity. Another thing of interest is a chance to enter a raffle uh, for a one in a thousand chance of winning a a 45-minute Spitfire trip, wow, along the Dover coastline. Wow. While the tickets are quite expensive at 20, 20 quid... Yeah, okay. Uh, Well, tickets are expensive at 20 quid each. The odds are pretty good, especially when you consider that it would cost you £3,900 plus for the same trip if you just turned up with your checkbook. Uh, The funds are to be split between the British aerobatics team and the Douglas Bader Foundation... And there's also some links to go with that. Will be in the show notes.
1: I, I don't know but, if it's, it's because, it, sorry, I know you know you've got a little bit more to that email, but I don't know if it's because obviously Remembrance Day is literally around the corner. Mm. Uh, whether that the thought of flying over Dover in a oh, Spitfire, wow. you know, flying over the White Cliffs of Dover. I mean, I've got um, you know Vera Lynn in my my ears now, singing singing that song. Mm. Um, you know, that, that I mean, that would be something quite special, wouldn't it? Especially, you know, this time of year.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, the Douglas Bader Foundation uh, is a great charity that helps disabled and otherwise disadvantaged people. You may have seen them on TV last week when two severely disabled people they helped fly actually ended up piloting their own aircraft at a display in Duxford. In normal years, uh, they said they usually spend weekends volunteering. It says it is time aircraft uh, flying aircraft, flying kids, and sometimes their parents for short trips around the island. Uh, for a busy day of fun. Hopefully it may happen again next summer. Yes, we do hope things happen again next summer. Uh, Just imagine if Nev entered the raffle and won. He'd never, ever be able to top that for NPE material, would he?
1: Good point.
0: Uh, Keep up the great work, Richard. And also two points to add as well on this. The lectures are available as a recording after the fact. Uh, You can email them at... Email info at maidenheadheritage.org.uk dot uk to request a copy. And also the closing date for the raffle is January the twelfth, twenty twenty one. So twenty quid, get out get out of your wallet. You know christmas presents for your family and friends a 20 pound ticket to try and win this prize to uh, to win that 45 minute spitfire trip along the dover coastline and I, I i'll honestly i've seen the videos on youtube of this of this happening and it would be wow
1: yeah it really would. Yeah, be something really to win much. so yeah. we're going to start wrapping bits and pieces uh up now now nev you were supposed to do be doing a little bit of flying this week but of course it that that's sort of come to a bit of a grinding halt yes <laughs> i was
3: supposed to be going to gothenburg on uh, sunday for the week uh but the government uh, shut the uh, the corridor uh, between uh, the uk and sweden uh, i think it was yesterday and also to germany as well and also to denmark uh so that's <laughs> scuppered all that for a while so i should be uh, working at home for will no, be working week from home like
1: the rest of us l- Yeah. Or see yeah
3: future as well
1: indeed I think. Uh, what about you carlos what have you got uh, in the can as it were
0: uh just a busy week coming up we are very busy at the minute with haulage and stuff so we've got lots going on That's at good. work everybody needs and, courier drivers uh, at the moment. everyone needs courier drivers exactly yeah. <laughs> and i've just also just uh, planning on uh R- relieving some money from the joint account for buying some of these um, lottery tickets. Are these tickets for the oh, prize right. raffle? Uh, right, I'm, yeah. I'm
1: sure the wife will be delighted. Um, that's a great, <laughs> great news. Uh, I'm not really up to much this week. It's just sort of uh, so. Although we're in lockdown here, because um, obviously kids are still going to school, so I'm still doing my mis- morning and afternoon school runs, and then uh, obviously I saw the, you today. You, you, I did. Yes, I, I saw you today. Yes, absolutely. I actually, re- I actually spotted him as well. That's most. He waves he, and he flashes. I, I did. I flashed my lights and waved at him and everything, uh, and. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if Armando's still there. I don't know if he's got. um, I don't know what he's up to this week. Oh, there he is. (laughs) There he is. What are you up to this week, Armando? Recovering, I guess.
4: Yeah, it's a a whole lot of the same. Uh, Just kind of sitting home and uh, having my lovely family wait on my every request oh, quite well absolutely quite right
1: too i can't think of anyone better to be to be doing oh dear carlos is playing his violin again we'll we'll, we'll yeah. ignore him uh, this is
4: just a this is just a secret between the four of us my wife is terrible at, at taking care of a grown man she has no sympathy what whatsoever <laughs> uh, really i totally rely on on the dogs to Right, come
1: me. and give you comfort, yes. Serve me tea,
4: yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So you're
1: very but, thirsty but and least, hungry then. Yeah. But at least we're
4: off air already and nobody will hear that. No,
1: it's fine. Nobody's watching. It's fine. That's good that's good news. Uh well there we go. Uh, so social media links if you aren't doing so already mm. then it's Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You need to search social media for Plain Talking UK. Uh, the WhatsApp number plus 447572249166 We are actually having some problems with that at the moment which I'm trying to get to the bottom of but do please keep sending them in because uh, hopefully they'll come through when I get it sorted. Plus 447572249166 Email is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com and it's www.plaintalkinguk.com If you want to come and have a look at our lovely new shiny website where you can do things like buy t-shirts and mugs and then there's some biogs of of all the team on there and everybody who works behind the scenes. Uh, Why not subscribe to us on our YouTube channel? You'll get notifications when we go live and you can help shape the conversation of the show by joining us in the chat room. Go to www.youtube.com and search for Plain Talking UK. Uh, Why not use our Amazon link as well? That way you can contribute towards the show without having to sort of put your hand in the proverbial pocket. Uh, If you buy stuff using our Amazon link, we receive an advertising referral fee, um, so you can donate to the show without even having to spend an actual penny other than what you were going to spend at Amazon. Uh, Or if you do have a couple of coppers lying down the side of the sofa, then why not become a Patreon? Go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for Plain Talking UK, and uh, you could become a Patreon of the show and help contribute uh, there. So our guest who we had earlier on, it was was uh, the lovely Ryan. Uh, His YouTube, if you search YouTube for NT, so that's November Tango Mike Alpha Pilot. Search uh, all one word like that, you'll find him on YouTube. Facebook.com forward slash Missionary Bush Pilot. Instagram is at Missionary Bush Pilot. That's Bit of a mouthful, and his blog. Uh, it's uh, blogs.ethnos360.org/ryan-farron, uh, and that's how you can uh, find
0: out more more about our wonderful guest we had earlier on in the show. Carlos, time to wrap up quickly. So a big thanks to everyone who's joined us in the YouTube chat room this evening, all the usual family in there. Massive thanks for taking time out your Fridays. Don't forget as well, a big thanks to everyone who downloads the show as an audio podcast each week. Big thanks to you all as well. And don't forget, if you download through the various links and iTunes and stuff, do, if you have got five minutes, leave us a nice little five-star rating. We would love that indeed. So from me, Carlos, here in my home P2K studio, from Matt in his Master PTK Studios suite, from Nev in the Nev Tech Studios, and from the legendary Armando over in his Charlotte Studios. Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week.
1: Guys, it is um, of course Remembrance Sunday uh, this week. Uh, I have a very special piece that Captain Nick, the legend that is Captain Nick, helped me put together. Uh, A couple of years ago, you may remember that we put together something about the Unknown Warrior, which was a very memorable piece. Uh, This time round, uh, Captain Nick very kindly tells us all about the In Flanders Field.
2: John McCree was brought up in a strict Scottish Presbyterian family with a brother Tom and sister Gaelish. His father was a soldier, a lieutenant-colonel, who brought him up to be a man of principle with strong spiritual values, although he was also described as being warm and sensitive with a great compassion for both people and animals. John McCree began writing poetry whilst a student at the Guelph Collegiate Institute. As a young boy he was also interested in the military. He joined the Highfield Cadet Corps at 14 and at 17 he followed his father into the profession of arms when he enlisted in the militia field battery that his father commanded. He was the very first Guelph student to win a scholarship to the University of Toronto at which he was awarded a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1894, despite suffering from severe asthma, something that would dog him for his entire life. He went on to attend medical school and spent the summer of his third year as a resident physician at the Garrett Hospital in Mount Airy, outside Baltimore, a summer convalescent home for sick children. He wrote an essay about his young patients and frequently described the children in his correspondence. A kitten has taken up with a poor child, dying of muscular atrophy, who cannot move. It stays with him all the time and sleeps most of the day in his straw hat. Tonight I saw the kitten curled up under the bedclothes. It seems, as it were, a gift of providence that the little creature should attach itself to the child who needs it most. Whilst working towards his degree, he tutored other students to help pay for his studies. Two of his students were amongst the first women doctors in Ontario. In his spare time, he was also improving his skills as a poet. At university, he had 16 poems and several short stories published in a variety of magazines. He continued to train as a soldier, becoming a gunner, a quartermaster sergeant, and then an officer in 1893. At university, he was a member of the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada and became a company captain. Concluding his studies in 1898, John McCree received a Bachelor of Medicine degree and the gold medal, from the University of Toronto Medical School. He worked as a resident at Toronto General Hospital, and then interned at the John Hopkins Hospital, where his brother, Tom, also worked as assistant resident. There, both John and Tom became close associates of Dr. William Osler, the preeminent medical educator of his time. When the South African War started in October 1899, John felt it was his duty to fight. He requested the postponement of his fellowship in pathology that he had been awarded and was commissioned to lead an artillery battery from his hometown, Guelph, becoming part of D-Battery, Canadian Field Artillery. He spent a year in South Africa with his unit, fighting in the Second Boer War, a conflict that gained little support outside of the empire and caused argument within the British government itself. When he left South Africa, it was with mixed feelings. He was still convinced of the need to fight for one's country, but shocked by the poor treatment of the sick and injured soldiers. He was promoted eventually to major, but then left the military to pursue a successful medical career. In 1904, he was appointed an associate in medicine at the Royal Victoria Hospital, and later that year he went to England and became a member of the Royal College of Physicians. In 1908, he was appointed physician to the Royal Alexander Hospital for Infectious Diseases. He was a respected teacher and doctor, and well-loved for his enthusiasm and sense of responsibility to his patients. A gregarious man with many friends, he loved taking holidays in Europe and often worked his passage as a ship's surgeon. He was also a spiritual man, attending Sunday morning services regularly at St Paul's Presbyterian Church in Montreal. His love of poetry continued and he was a member of the Shakespearean Club and the Pen and Pencil Club, a group of artists, writers and teachers, which included Stephen Laycock amongst its members. However, his life was to change in a dramatic way when on August the 4th 1914 Britain declared war on Germany. Canada, as a member of the British Empire, also went to war and its citizens from all across the land responded quickly. Within three weeks, 45,000 Canadians had rushed to join up. At 42 years of age, John was older than most of the volunteers, but he was given a post as a medical officer with the 1st Brigade of the Canadian Field Artillery, with the rank of Major. Just before his departure, he wrote to a friend. It's a terrible state of affairs and I'm going because I think every bachelor, especially if he has experience of war, ought to go. I'm really rather afraid, but more afraid to stay at home with my conscience. In April 1915, John McRae was in the trenches near Ypres, Belgium, in the area traditionally known as Flanders. Some of the heaviest fighting of the First World War took place there, during what was known as the Second Battle of Ypres. On the 22nd of April, the Germans used deadly chlorine gas against Allied troops in a desperate attempt to break the stalemate. Despite the debilitating effects of the gas, the Canadian soldiers fought relentlessly and held the line for another 16 days. In the trenches, John McCrae tended hundreds of wounded soldiers every day. He was surrounded by the dead and the dying. In a letter to his mother, he wrote, The general impression in my mind is of a nightmare. We have been in the most bitter of fights. For 17 days and 17 nights, none of us have had our clothes off, nor our boots even, except occasionally. In all that time, while I was awake, gunfire and rifle fire never ceased for sixty seconds. And behind it all was the constant background of the sight of the dead, the wounded, the maimed, and a terrible anxiety, lest the line should give way. With him he had his horse, Bonfire, a gift from a friend, and he also befriended a dog he named Bono who accompanied him on his rounds through the medical wards. During this battle, he and his medical staff treated nearly 4,600 wounded men. As the battle drew to a close, he looked back on the past two and a half weeks spent treating injured men, Canadians, British, French and Germans in the Ypres Salient. John later wrote I wish I could embody on paper some of the varied sensations of that 17 days 17 days of Hades At the end of the first day if anyone had told us we had to spend 17 days there we would have folded our hands and said it could not have been done it was then, whilst John was in charge of a medical aid post in a dugout cut into the bank of the Yser Canal, that his good friend, 22 year old Lieutenant Alexis Helmer of Ottawa, was blown apart by enemy artillery fire. The exploding shell left little of his friend's body, but what could be found was gathered together in a blanket and buried in a makeshift grave amongst the wild poppies that were beginning to bloom between the crosses, marking the many dead who lay there. The grave has since been lost one of the 54,896 soldiers who have no known grave in the battlefields of the Ypres salient. John himself read the funeral service, Unable to help his friend or any of the others who had died, he sat on the footboards of an ambulance wagon and took out his pencil to give them a voice through his poem in Flanders Fields, one of the last he would ever write. Not long after, John was transferred to become the Chief of Medical Services at No. 3 Canadian General Hospital in France. The hospital was housed in huge tents until the cold, wet weather forced to move to the site of the ruined Jesuit College at Boulogne. The hospital had more than 1,500 beds and covered 26 acres. Here the wounded were bought from the Battle of the Somme, the Battle of Vimy Ridge, the Third Battle of Ypres, and from Arras and Passchendaele. John was deeply affected by the fighting and losses, and like many, he became bitter and disillusioned. He felt he should have made greater sacrifices, and insisted on living in a tent through the winter, like his comrades at the front, rather than in the warm officers' huts. When the cold and damp affected his health, he had to be ordered into warmer surroundings. After the Battle of Ypres, he was never again the optimistic man with the infectious smile. During the summer of 1917, John McRae was troubled by severe asthma attacks and occasional bouts of bronchitis. He became very ill and in January 1918 he was diagnosed with pneumonia. He was moved to No. 14 British General Hospital for Officers where he continued to grow weak. On the first day that he fell ill again, he learned that he had been appointed consulting physician to the First British Army, the first ever Canadian to be so honoured. But on January the 28th, after an illness lasting only five days, he died of pneumonia and meningitis. He was buried with full military honours, at the Ouimetreau Cemetery, just north of Boulogne, not far from the fields of Flanders. Bonfire, his horse led the procession, Macrae's riding boots reversed in the stirrups. His death was met with great grief from all who knew him. A friend wrote that the day of the funeral was a beautiful spring day. None of us wore overcoats, you know, the haze that comes over the hills at Wimaru. I felt so thankful that the poet of In Flanders Fields was lying out there in the bright sunshine, in the open space he loved so well. Soon after its publication, In Flanders Fields became one of the most popular and admired poems of the First World War and was translated into many languages. Because of the poem's significance, the poppy was adopted as the flower of remembrance for the war dead of Britain, France, the United States, Canada, and many other countries. The words are now spoken in honour of the fallen by countless people around the world during times of remembrance. In Flanders' fields, the poppies blow. Between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place, and in the sky the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields.